Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. Grace and peace. I think about how they love me and how they care for me, how they're with me, how they show up for me, which we talked a little bit about last week. Uh, But when I think about how much they love me, and how strong and encouraging they are when I'm not, uh, it causes me to think about unique and specific moments, right? That it isn't this vague understanding of love that they have for me. It isn't this vague understanding of strength and comfort that they offer me, but I uniquely think about moments where they are those things. It feels practical down to earth on the ground for me. And I think in the same ways, what we want to do today is talk about how God is strong and beautiful and mighty and loving and gracious. But what is it about God's love? How does that show up for us? Uh, what are the moments, the practical ways that we can see the way that God is mighty and loving for us uniquely, specifically? And so. I want to be able to do that for us through Psalm 23. But before we jump into that, can I pray? Let's just sit with God for a moment. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, uh, above all else, that you would make us aware. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us a mind that discovers. (laughs) Give us an endless hunger for curiosity that we would go beyond uh, words and into experience, that we would say that your love is great and mighty uh, because out of a deep experience of your love and power. So Holy Spirit, today as we open up your word, as we continue to worship you uh, in the form of reading your word, God, I pray that we would not see words on pages or pages in a book, but that we would see opportunities, (laughs) opportunities to see your face, to experience your love and power. Holy Spirit, would you do that for us? We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. What up, Epiphany? How y'all doing? Love it. Your just feels good to the soul. (laughs) The your feels good to the soul. Um, Now, for those of you that may not know who I am, my name is... uh, uh, Rich Perez, I born and raised here in New York. Uh, my family moved to Atlanta about two years ago, uh, and we've been there, and it's been great, but we miss New York, so it's good to be here with y'all. Um, a few years ago, uh, as we were leading the church, and as I mentioned, transitioning in, in, in 2020 or late 2020, uh, this uh, November of last year, we hosted our very first uh, Thanksgiving uh, in our new home, in our new city. Uh, going from 600 square feet to 1,500 square feet has been really, really good to our soul uh, and for our sanity and for our marriage. And so <clears throat> uh, it's been great. But we hosted our first Thanksgiving, uh, and it was interesting. We had so many people there. I mean, I grew up in, a, in an environment, you know, as a Dominican kid, I grew up where we celebrated just about everything. Like, I learned how to tie my shoes, and there was, like, aunts and uncles throwing parties. You know, it's just the environment I grew up in. So we loved the idea of hosting. In fact, I think hospitality sits at the center of the gospel of Jesus, where God creates a space, and he invites us into it. Uh, and so <clears throat> we threw our, our first Thanksgiving uh, party at our new crib uh, down in Atlanta, and our wife realized that our two biggest concerns were just to help people feel safe and satisfied. Our two biggest concerns were that people would feel safe and satisfied. And I realized that those two things in a world full of conflict and trauma and difficult relationship, that it can almost seem impossible to help people feel safe and satisfied, even more so sustain a life where people can feel safe and satisfied. And and it's no surprise to me, considering the last two years of social unrest, global pandemic, violence, all the things that we've had to experience that I feel like our eyes are plastered with all the time, it's no surprise to me uh, that we try to avoid pain as much as possible and we try to pursue a kind of self-interest as much as possible because the world we've lived in has to some degree pushed us in that direction. And I think that that is connected to our inability to embrace limits and needs. 
I think that a part of that is due to the fact that we have a difficult time embracing the fact that we are very needy and limited people. And I don't mean needy in a negative way. We just have needs. That's just the fact of the matter. We live with needs and we live with limits, but we have a really hard time embracing it. And I think birthed out of that kind of trauma and tragedy, if you were here with us last week, we talked a little bit about that. Birth out of trauma and tragedy is this kind of hyper unhealthy independence that says, I don't need anybody. So oftentimes I've realized this both about myself and people that I've engaged with when they say that they're really independent. Sometimes that independence comes from trauma. Because it informs it in such a way that says, well, I don't really need anybody because the last time I needed somebody, they hurt me. The last time I needed somebody, they misused me, they abused me, or they failed me, and therefore I'm going to just do things on my own. And oftentimes we admire people that are hyper-independent, but oftentimes hyper-independent people are people that are dealing with trauma that haven't healed. Uh, And so I think a lot of that is birthed out of the tragedies and trauma that we've dealt with. But that's really just a reality we live in that we have to navigate and and wrestle through. And I've had to ask myself a few questions. Uh, One being, how have I avoided my own limits? How have I avoided my own limits? How has it impacted my life with my friends, with my wife, with my two kids at work, uh, in my relationships, how has this kind of hyper-independence, this idea that I don't need, need anybody, the fact that I don't want to embrace my need or embrace my limits, how has that impacted the way that I live my life? And I, and I think part of what we want to do today with Psalm 23 is to discover the ways that avoiding limits and needs shows up in our lives. How does it actually show up when, when you when you Commit yourself to not embracing your limits and to not embracing your needs. How does that show up practically? What what, what kind of person do you become to your friends, to your spouse, to your kids in your workplace? How does it affect the way that you create if you're a creator, an artist? That's what I want to talk about today. So for context, I'm going to read all of Psalm 23, but for the rest of our time, I'm just going to focus on verse 3. We're going to read all the psalm just so we could get the whole, the whole song, but we're going to focus on verse 3. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters or still waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before, uh, before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me. Other versions say only goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. But for today, I want to focus on verse 3. He lets me lie down beside quiet waters. Excuse me. He, he, he lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. You know, the opening of this song, because this is a song, by the way, I said this in the first service, uh, and I'll say it here. The most natural response to processing our feelings is art. Yeah. <laughs> a song a painting, a poem, a thought, a reflection, a story. The most natural way to respond to us processing our feelings, which we talked quite a bit about last week, is art. If you think about all the social movements throughout history, at the very forefront of social movements has been a song, a piece of art, an artist. Art is a beautiful way of responding to the way that we're processing our feelings. And in fact, I love the fact that this isn't simply a psalm, it is a song, an expression of what the psalmist was feeling. And notice that in the very first verse, he tells us who God is. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, or he is a shepherd. But the rest of the song tells us how he lives out that reality. 
says, the Lord is the shepherd. He lives out that reality. Notice what he says in the rest of the song. It says, he lets me lie down. He leads me. He renews me. He directs me. In danger, he is with me. You comfort me. You prepare for me a table in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. To our very independent, kind of make-your-own-destiny culture, verse 2 or excuse me, verse 3, is very off-putting. The verse in focus is very off-putting to our very independent, create-your-own-destiny, make-your-own-decisions kind of culture. Why? Because he says, he lets me lie down in green pastures. And you almost say to yourself, well, Rich, don't nobody let me do anything. I do what I want when I want, right? But, but as I've sat with this over the course of the last few years and just tried to read this from a different vantage point because I want to understand the tone to which this verse is delivered to me, I began to see this less as permission that God is granting and more like an invitation that he's offering. So this is less of God letting me do something, but more of God inviting me into something. And church, if, if I'm really honest with you, this is quite the radical invitation. To lay down and rest and stop demands a lot of us. To lay down and rest demands a lot of us. And I want us to really see that this invitation where God says, hey, I'm inviting you to lay down in green pastures is quite the radical invitation. Why? Because it means that you're satisfied, that you're happy, and you're content with whatever it is that you were working on in church. That's a really terrifying thought because then you have to understand yourself beyond what you do. You have to understand yourself beyond what you do, beyond what you produce. And that's terrifying because I'm not quite convinced that we believe that we're worth more than what we can produce. The idea of stopping and resting and chilling because you're content, the invitation is, hey, be content, rest. The idea of stopping is terrifying because I have shaped my identity, I've shaped my value to the world, to my relationships, in my workspaces, in the other spaces that I I occupy. I've built my worth around what I can produce. So if you tell me to stop producing then I have to find where my worth is. So when God says, lie down in green pastures, that invitation is, sounds beautiful. And it even sounds appealing. It sounds like, yo, I'm so hungry for rest. But something inside of us and the way we've wired our identity doesn't let us lie down because we're convinced that our value only comes from what we can offer. It only comes from what, what my hands can produce. Rest is fundamentally about trust, not inactivity. When God invites you to rest, he's not telling you be inactive. When he he invites you to rest, he's inviting you to trust and be connected to something far, far more valuable. This may be the reason why we don't rest well. We can be inactive. We can take vacations. But I don't know that we rest well. When it comes to the sheep, in this case, that's the metaphor he uses to describe us. When it comes to sheep, sheep typically rest for one of two reasons. They lay down and rest for one of two reasons. One, the sheep is satisfied in its grazing. Or two, the sheep feels safe in its environment. It's either satisfied with its grazing or it feels safe in its environment. And I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about those two ideas, those two invitations of being safe and satisfied. You know, it's interesting. Uh, whenever I've heard this word in Psalm 23 preach, whenever I've heard this, uh, I've typically only heard it in funerals, by the way. But whenever I've heard it preached or taught or whenever I've read it myself, I, I read this part where he lets me lay down in green pastures And it's often led me to think about abundant, vibrant greenery or pastures. But I've been to that part of the world. 
ain't nothing lush or vibrant about their pastures. In fact, Israel, that part of the world, first century Palestine, is a very arid and dry place. So the pastures were less abundant and lush and more patchy. They're more patchy grass. And if it wasn't up to the, and if it wasn't for the shepherd, the sheep would graze patchy grounds forever. So it was the responsibility of the shepherd to know when it was time to move to the next patchy pasture so that the sheep wouldn't be munching on dirt after a certain point. And as I thought about that responsibility of the shepherd and the sheep and the fact that in that part of the world, the, 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 the pastures weren't lush, but they were patchy, it made me think about God and Israel as he helped them to navigate the wilderness. Because the wilderness is, is, is a place where uh, the land doesn't offer you much. Also kind of an arid place. The wilderness symbolically uh, represents chaos or barrenness. It's a place where not much is offered to you. Yet God somehow was able to sustain an entire nation. God was able to sustain an entire nation through an arid, dry wilderness for 40 years. Giving them what they needed each day for every single one of those years. God was able to provide it. Just as the shepherd helps the sheep to graze in very patchy land. But having what you need for the day isn't the way that we operate. That's not how we live, right? Having just what we need for the day isn't how we live. You see, we're constantly being pulled to think about what's next, the next meal, the next opportunity, the next job. And because of that, I think we have a lot of trouble receiving from God the day's portion, you see, because when we're thinking so often about the next meal and about what's next, ensuring that everything is placed for the week and for the month and making sure everything's in order, which is fine, but I think it presents a unique challenge when God says, no, I'm just going to give you the day's portion. We have trouble with it because we're thinking in weeks and in months, and, and we would much rather God give us the week's portion rather than the day's portion. we much rather God give us the month's portion. we much ra rather God allow us to get the Costco portion of the blessing or of the bread so that we don't have to worry about uh, what we will have each day. You see, praying our daily bread sounds beautiful. Living it is quite a different thing. If we had the week's portion or the month's portion, that just feels safer, doesn't it? It makes you walk through the day with a bit more security. But if, I, if God were to give us the week's portion or the month's portion instead of the day's portion, I think it gets in the way of something meaningful that he's trying to do in us. I think we lose something. I want to tell you all about Domingo. Domingo's my boy uh, up in Uptown, the Dykeman area, and... Um, Domingo is homeless and unemployed, and for many years, he visited our church. He was a part of our community. I think initially he came because we served breakfast in the morning, uh, but he stayed, and he became family to many of our people, and every day, Domingo went to the Love Kitchen, which was a local food pantry uh, in our neighborhood, where he would get online and receive a hot meal for the day, every single day, and he would make that line every single day. And every day he saw other people on that line that lived with the same kind of needs that he did. And church, I'm sure that there were days that Domingo did not want to make that line. Not because he didn't want to eat or that he didn't need to eat. Certainly he needed to and wanted to. But I think that there were days he did not want to make that line because he was just not up for it. He was not up for uh, making the, uh, living with the burden of that need every single day. He didn't want to get on that line. He didn't want to engage with the volunteers. But there was something deeply meaningful about that practice for him. He didn't want to leave with that kind of burden because, listen, having to live with the burden of needing someone every single day, that's a different kind of burden. It's an overwhelming kind of burden. 
And I'm sure he wanted to get on that line some days and leave with more than just one meal. I'm sure that there were days where Domingo was like, yo, can you give me a few meals for the next few days so that I wouldn't have to come back, so that I wouldn't have to make this line, so that I wouldn't have to bear the burden of this daily need. But the love kitchen only gave him one meal a day. But church, guess what coming back every single day offered Domingo, at least in this case, what offered Domingo? Having to come back daily gave him the opportunity to develop a relationship with those people that were serving him. He learned their names, their stories. He even learned their purpose. Coming back every day, he learned what brings them joy and why they were even doing this to begin with. Here's what I'm trying to say. That when God offers us daily bread, he doesn't do so as a cruel joke, but as a loving invitation. You see, because God may feed us with bread, but what he satisfies us is his company. And I think oftentimes we may confuse the two, that God will feed you, and we do need to eat. We do need to eat bread, and we'll see later on how Jesus didn't ignore that practical need, but what he realized was that what was going to deeply transform and satisfy us was not the bread we ate, but the one who served it to us, but the company in which we ate that bread with. God gives us daily bread, not as a cruel joke, but as a loving invitation. He feeds us with bread, but he deeply satisfies us with his company. And church, this is deeply important to how we mature as honest, vulnerable, thoughtful, generous, loving children of God. If we want to live in our world as thoughtful, as honest, as imaginative, as vulnerable, as transformative people, if we want to show up for people in a deep, meaningful ways, this idea is deeply important. Being able to grasp this is a really important part of how we mature as humans, how we mature as children of God. Because in a season of both abundance or wilderness, you, you, you don't endure on borrowed bread. There's absolutely no way that in a season of crisis or in a season of abundance or in, even in a season of chaos that you're going to endure that season on borrowed bread. God is inviting us to understand that relationship with him, our own is what's going to sustain us and endure. We don't endure seasons of crisis on borrowed bread in the same way that we don't get full by watching someone else eat. And the invitation that God is offering us is to eat with him. But check this out. The shepherd isn't simply inviting the sheep to feed on the green pastures. This is a very important idea. He's not inviting us to simply feed on the green pastures. He's inviting them to leisurely eat. From the green pastures, to lie down and rest, to lie down on the green pastures. Listen, I don't know about y'all, but when I eat my food slow, it, it, it sit different. It just hit different when I eat it, especially when I think about uh, eating a, a, a meal prepared by my wife or my, my little girl who loves to cook. I, I sit and I eat it slowly. I savor the flavors. They just hit differently for me. And the invitation that God is offering is not, yo, just eat and breeze. He's saying eat. Leisurely eat in my company. This is the difference between me taking my son through the drive-thru for fast food and then going on right to the next appointment. Or me sitting down with my son, asking for a table or two, sitting with him and enjoying a meal in each other's company. And this is the invitation that God is inviting us to. He lets us lie down in green pastures. God is inviting us to have our fill and our rest. Both are important to God. And this is precisely why Jesus reminds Satan that we don't survive on bread alone. This is precisely why Jesus says this in Luke chapter 4. We don't survive on bread alone because our souls thrive on trust and connection. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God, what is Jesus saying there? Trust. He's highlighting trust. He's highlighting connection. He's highlighting intimacy in the same way that I listen to my wife or I listen to my kids deeply and sincerely, that their words matter to me, that I trust my wife to make decisions for our family in the same way that she trusts me to make decisions for our family. When, when Jesus says we don't survive on bread alone, 
But on every word that hangs from the, word of, from the mouth of God, the invitation there is trust is what will help you to endure. Intimacy is what will help you to endure. Relationship, meaningfully, is what will help you to endure, not simply bread. This is the invitation echoed by Jesus himself, the good shepherd, in Matthew 15 when he says, I have had compassion on the crowd. Because they've already stayed with me three days and, I, and have had nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry. Otherwise, they might collapse on the way. Jesus does not. It is not lost to Jesus that people need to eat. It is not lost to Jesus that people need to eat. But Jesus also simultaneously at the same time understands that Jesus sees the journey as impossible without his compassion. He understands that this journey is impossible without his compassion and without his provision. It wasn't the bread that satisfied that crowd. It was the one who blessed the bread that satisfied them. It wasn't what was done that deeply matters. It was the one who did it. And God has a deep desire to satisfy each and every one of us like nothing else we've experienced. The question is, will we allow him? Will we take up his invitation? You see, but not only does this verse invite us to feel satisfied in the company of God, but it's also inviting us to feel safe in the company of God. I didn't know this uh, about sheep because I didn't grow up around them. (laughs) In Washington Heights, we didn't have very many sheep, not unless they were on my plate. Uh, But what I realized about sheep as I studied them was that they have rectangular pupils, not spherical ones like we do. And what that means is that they have almost nearly perfect vision, 320 degrees in fact, that if standing in one place, a sheep could see all, almost all around them, just standing in one place, they can almost see all around them. But what's interesting to me is that what they have in periphery, they lack in depth. What they have in periphery, they lack in depth. In other words, sheep could see all around them, but they got trouble making out what's right in front of them. Sheep could see all around them, but they have trouble making out what's right in front of them. You know, it's interesting. I'm like, God, is there another animal you could use to describe us like a bear, right? Or a lion? I'll take a German shepherd, you know. I'll take something. But God decides to use the metaphor of sheep to describe how we are. Ain't that funny that he says we're sheep, that we are people that sometimes can see all around us but have trouble seeing what's right in front of us. Not to mention that sheep don't have claws. They don't run fast and they don't have sharp teeth. They are in many ways defenseless. They are the prey, not the predator in the wild. They're constantly being hunted and very few times... Do sheep feel like they can settle down somewhere and rest? Lay down in green pastures ain't for the sheep, unless the shepherd knows what he's doing. Church, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a sheep. In fact, the way that we've just described. Imagine being able to see all around you, but not in front of you. Imagine, because of that, having ultra-sensitive hearing for hundreds of yards away. Imagine... Constantly wondering what animals are around hunting you and realizing that you would be practically defenseless when they came. Any little movement, any little sound, any little unfamiliarity would trigger anxiety and fear and worry. So it's no surprise to me that the sheep being this way, that the shepherd brings them to quiet waters. So that they wouldn't be distracted receiving the very thing the shepherd brought them there for. Refreshment. You see, if the shepherd would have brought them, shepherd knows what he's doing. Shepherd would have brought them to rustling, a, a rustling brook or a river. They'd probably be too distracted because of the sounds to receive from the water the very thing the shepherd intended to give them. Refreshment. So he brings them to quiet, still waters so that they can be refreshed by the waters. Summer of 2020, as it was for all of us, was a really difficult summer for me, and particularly for my family. 
Uh, we experienced some loss and dealing with global pandemic, dealing and leading a church, organizational leadership, all that stuff that uh, puts high demands on any of us. While trying to love my kids, be present with my wife, all of it just felt really overwhelming in the summer of 2020. And I experienced really, really severe anxiety uh, that summer. And during the moments of my deepest anxiety in those months, I noticed that the places where I was able to truly, truly rest were the places that didn't make any demands on me. The places where I was truly able to rest were the places that didn't make any demands on me, where I was able to exist without any obligations except be myself. And listen, y'all, summer of 2020, myself was a mess. I was a real mess. I was broken. I was fragile. I was insecure. I was fearful. I was anxious. And if I had pretended to be anything but those things in that season, I would probably implode. And I don't know if that resonates with you if you've gone through seasons where you're just feeling so much, uh, life has thrown so much of you and you have real feelings to navigate, but you step into a room or you're in a relationship where you can't really bring those things because you feel like you'd be too much of a burden, so you pretend. I don't know if that's any of y'all, but it definitely was me summer of 2020. Shoot, it might have been me most of my life, if I'm honest. But the places that made me feel safe were the places with people that didn't obligate me to be anything but what I was experiencing. My anxiety made it really difficult for me to rest mentally, physically. I felt like my body was reacting to the anxiety that I was feeling, and it just felt impossible to rest, or at least that's what I felt. And the only places I realized where I could truly lie down were the places that made me feel safe, the places that didn't make me feel like I needed to pretend and ignore what I was ex experiencing in those moments. The places that welcomed me just as I am and just as I was in those moments <clears throat> where love and intimacy wouldn't be jeopardized because of me. Now, I want you all to hear this real quick. The places that felt safest to me were the ones that, made, that allowed me to be broken, to be insecure, and that gave me the security that me being broken and me being insecure and me being fearful wasn't going to jeopardize the connection I had with the people in that space. Because if I'm honest, there are many relationships I have that say that they're a safe place for me, but when I'm broken and fragile and fearful, they quickly try to rush me out of it because it's too uncomfortable for them. Those are not a safe, that's not a safe space. A safe space, a safe space is when you can walk into a room and don't feel obligated to be anyone but yourself at that moment in order to make a connection, in order to experience intimacy. In other words, you want to be intimate with me, you got to be intimate with every part of me. If I'm going to make a real connection in my relationship and in the spaces I occupy, you got to deal with me when I'm insecure. You got to be okay with me being fearful. You got to be okay with me being anxious. Don't simply try to rush me out of it because it's too uncomfortable for you or because you have a very reduced understanding of what having faith means. <laughs> that if I show any signs of fear or anxiety, it means I'm not being faithful. That's not true. I have real feelings, and through those feelings, I can find God if you just allow me to feel them. If you would just allow me to feel them, if you would allow me to experience them, shoot, you may even find God yourself through my fear. This is the invitation that God is offering us when he says, you can be safe here. And listen, let me say this to whoever may be feeling it. In your seasons of brokenness, in your seasons of insecurity and fear, your seasons of brokenness, you are not the reason you can't experience intimacy. You are not the reason you can't experience it. Not everybody can handle our feelings. That's okay. There's a space out there where people can handle it. And it begins with God. A friend shared with me in that season, in fact, to a group of us, he shared, he shared this about pastors and leaders. He said, uh, pastors and leaders often walk into a room 
calculating who needs me to be what to them so that I can be that thing they need me to be so that I can secure connection in return. We walk into rooms calculating what does this person need me to be so I could be that thing for them just so that I can secure a connection with them. And he, go, he goes on to say, we spend our days wearing masks just so that we can make connections, just so that we can ensure intimacy. And I thought to myself, man, that is deeply, deeply profound. And it's deeply true of all of us, not just pastors and leaders. But here's the thing, church. We don't even get intimacy in those cases anyway. Because you spent all day wearing a mask, any connection, any connection that you made with people throughout that day, any connection that you experienced with people wasn't truly with you. It was with the mask you had on. So connection is not there even to begin with. You know, in a few moments, we're going to invite you to take your masks off, like your your pretend mask, not your real mask, so make sure you don't take those off. But this idea that we walk around pretending to be someone else wearing a mask simply because we think, we think making a connection, ensuring intimacy is important to us giving people what they need or what they want. We end up living out the projections of other people rather than the life God has called us to. The greater tragedy, church, is that We begin to treat God this way. We begin to think that this is the way that God operates. And when we treat God this way, and when we operate with God this way, we don't take God up on his offer to love us. Hear me. If you live your life pretending to be someone else, Simply because you want to appease the projections of others because you're afraid you'd be too big of a burden or people can't handle your emotions or your feelings so you pretend because it's far too painful to show all of yourself. you rather deal with the pain of keeping it all in and pretending to be someone else, the pain of not being yourself. And now you bring that into your relationship with God. You could never take God up on his offer to love you. Why? Because God wants to love you, not your mask. So when you refuse to be honest about where you are, when you refuse to be yourself, whatever that self may be in that moment, you are also refusing God's love. But church, I'll be honest. Over the course of my life and my relationships, I've come to realize that taking off your mask is a real risk. It's really risky. And in fact, sometimes it's really painful. It's a legitimate fear because I am convinced that love is risky. There's really no way around it. Love is risky. It may may not sound as beautiful as love is kind and love is patient. but But even nestled into that idea that love is kind and love is patient is difficulty. (laughs) What would I need love to be kind and patient for if it wasn't hard? (laughs) Love is risky and at times painful. We know. I know every single one of us here that that is breathing understands the gut-wrenching feeling and the gut-wrenching pain of being vulnerable in the wrong hands. We know what that feels like. The pain that makes us reluctant to trust again and try love again because you know what? We've been honest. We talked about this last week. We've been vulnerable before. And people have mishandled it. In fact, some people have exploited it and abused it. So you know now I'm not as uh, quick to love. I'm not as quick to trust. And in some cases, that's wise. But what ends up happening to us is that we begin to get cold. And we begin to live isolated because the soul needs connection. The soul needs trust. Yet the liberating truth of Jesus on the cross, the life of Jesus, all of what Jesus represents, his coming, his maturing in stature and wisdom, his engagement in the world, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to glory, all of Jesus' life 
reminds us that this idea of vulnerability is our right. The liberating truth of Jesus' life is that he took on the vulnerable realities of loving a people who he knew would betray him. He was vulnerable enough to love a people that he absolutely knew would reject him so that we could be honest with our lives. Jesus was vulnerable, was rejected so that we would trust and be honest. Because love, church, love will always be on the other side of vulnerability. God desires to love us. And if we're going to have a deeper experience with God, then we are going to have to allow every part of ourselves, especially the parts that we've worked really hard to hide, (laughs) the parts that we've worked really hard to hide, we're going to have to allow God to love that part too. In fact, that, that part is probably the most important part. The part that we've worked on hiding, don't nobody know that this is how I really experience conflict. <laughs> don't nobody know that being in conflict makes me really uncomfortable, so I'd rather just show up differently and be the peace. Uh, I'd rather be the fake peacemaker just so that I don't have to deal with conflict. Nobody really knows I deal with that. And God is like, that's the part of you I want. That's the part of you I want to love. That's the part of you I want to liberate. That's the part of you I want to heal. But you're working so hard to hide it, I can't love all of you. John Legend got it right. All of me wants to love all of you. But God is saying, stop hiding it. But in order to stop hiding it, means you got to show it. To show it means you got to embrace vulnerability. To show it means you got to embrace the fact that you have limits. To show it means you got to embrace the idea that you have needs. The safest place for your soul to rest, as we consider rest, is love. Love is the safest place where your souls can rest. This is why in John chapter 1, excuse me, 1 John chapter 4, it says there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment so that the one who fears is not complete in love. Now, let me be very clear. I am not assuming that, that you'll never feel fear, and I don't think that that's what this passage is assuming either. This passage is not assuming that you will never feel fear. Neither is it saying that you have failed if you feel fear. That's not what this passage is saying. In fact, what I do believe this passage is saying that it's that it's inviting us to respond to our fears by embracing perfect love, which says that you will not be punished just because you think there are parts of your life that are unlovable. See, because when we look at our lives and we say, can nobody really love this, we're essentially punishing ourselves, keeping ourselves from trust and connection by hiding the parts of us that we think are unlovable. And God is not saying, yo, you, if you feel fear, you're not being faithful, or you should never feel fear. That's not part of the Christian walk. That's not, that's not at all what God is saying here. In fact, what he's saying, when you feel fear... Know that you can respond by embracing perfect love, which says you don't have to hide the unlovable parts of you because I want to love those too. I got somebody with me. (laughs) I might just be preaching to myself here. Lord knows I need it. Perfect love invites us to trust it enough Not to hide the parts of us that we believe are unlovable. It's comforting to watch the psalmist here as we kind of wrap up. It's comforting to watch the psalmist begin the psalm talking about God, but ending it talking to God. I'll have the worship team come up, but, but hear this. He starts the psalm talking about God. But he ends the psalm talking to God. And especially when you look at those last two verses, it feels like you're watching something really special between someone and their friend. Maybe that's just me. He says, you prepare for me a table in the presence of my enemies. 
You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. It's almost like watching two friends. It almost looks like someone just deeply having a comfortable, leisurely conversation with their friend. You know, I've been walking with Jesus for, for a few decades now, and one of the things that I've realized in my walk that I've done and I've seen others do is this terrible habit of framing our relationships in the context of utility. Here's what I mean. A relationship is only valuable as much as what they can offer me. Especially within the church context, we say uh, relationships are only as valuable as the mission, development, and training that they make room for me, in our, f- for me. In other words, being with you offers me something and I get it and I can go. And there is a part of that that is true. That is not untrue. But I think it is untrue to reduce it to that. To reduce relationship to utility is not helpful. Y'all ever have... You know, a homegirl, homeboy that you hang with, say, yo, can I come over to the crib? And y'all just go over to the crib. And and y'all may have had some plans, but y'all end up not doing anything, just kind of sitting on the couch, eating some food. Maybe y'all talk a little bit, but you leave that time hours later, and you're like, man, that was good. Y'all have those friends? Now, in a sense, it almost feels like you waste time together. Not in a negative sense, but in a time passes by. You you shoot the breeze with this person, and you may not have done something. You may not have gone out and completed a mission, but it's still as satisfying. That I think sometimes... The way we think about relationship in such a utilitarian way, in such a, this is useful to me. Uh, if I hang with God, he's going to make me right so that I can go out and complete the mission. We, we think so much about the mission, and I want to be careful in how I say this, but the mission-minded way of relationship that we forget just to be with God. Like when God invites you to be in his company, it's not so that he can wrap you up and send you out, but God invites you in his company, perhaps in the same way that your boy invited you or your homegirl invited you just to kick it, just to be with you, just to shoot, to shoot the breeze, spend some time in some, in some divine company. So that when you leave, yes, you are a changed person and you will go out into the world and do some amazing things and be an incredible witness. But that that wasn't the that that wasn't actually the purpose of God inviting you into your into his presence. But that God invited you just because the thought that God wanted to just be with you. (laughs) What I'm saying is both are true. But I think oftentimes We think that the utilitarian way of relationship with Jesus is more valuable. And you know why we think that? Even though I process this out loud with y'all, it's because we love to keep busy. (laughs) We love utility because we're just, we're always bending ourselves toward our worth being built around what we can do. And God is saying, "What what if I invited you just to chill? and not do anything. But what, you're not going to send me out? I just want you here. I just want to be with you. I just want you to be with me. I just want to be together. Yeah, but you know, we got to accomplish the mission. Ah, I just want to be with you. What if that was the invitation? Also, intimacy and connection is what God invites us to. And he does it in the form of friendship. And friendship is the relationship that deeply satisfies us, whether you're doing everything together or nothing together. I want to invite us to waste some time with God for a moment. So if you don't mind, let's close our eyes. And I'm only doing this to help y'all remove any distraction, lock in to what I want to invite you to imagine for a moment. And if it's difficult for you to close your eyes that's fine you keep them open or if you have kids with you and you need to keep your eye on your kids make sure you do that but but the idea here is to remove distraction imagine laying in an open field or even as I said in the first service maybe you don't have an open field maybe you just have a fire escape you're chilling on your fire escape my prayer closet for many years was my fire escape 
but you're chilling maybe Fort Greene Park, maybe your uh, Central Park, maybe your Fire Escape, and you're laying there totally satisfied. You have that, that feeling of satisfaction. You're not hungry. You're not thinking about food. You're, not, you're sitting there alone, but you're not lonely. All your work for the day is done, and you feel totally safe, not worried about a work project or your next meal or your kid's schoolwork. You're not fearful of a bill that needs to get paid. You're not concerned about a discomfort that you've been feeling in your body. You're just there feeling deeply satisfied. And then all of a sudden, you feel a wind blow by you. But the wind doesn't leave. It kind of settles right where you're sitting. Hovers around you. It grazes your face and, and your body. And it's not a cold wind. It's a warm one, a comforting one. And just as you're about to open your eyes, you hear the voice of Jesus say, say this to you. Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people have been coming and going, and you have not had time to eat. God, may, they, may this be true of us, that we can get away and rest with you. And as we are with you, God, I, I really do pray this. Sincerely, God, that we, in that time with you, would not be consumed about what are you going to send me off to do? How will I now accomplish the mission of your kingdom in the world? But that we would perhaps just for a moment marvel at the fact that God has us in his presence just to be with us. That there's no other mission, no other goal than to just be with God. And to grow certain and confident of his deep love. We sing so often and so passionately about how powerful and loving you are. God, may in the moments we are with you in silence, may that love become deep and practical. That you love us even in the ways that we've tried to hide from you. You love those parts. And you invite us to show them. Holy Spirit, do what I could never do. Make these words... In Psalm 23, come alive in real ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.